turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. All right, let's get started here with a good physics question. All right, remember physics class? All right, I want to ask you this question. What affects the trajectory of a projectile? Okay, now you're like, oh man, this is deep Sunday morning. Just think angry birds, okay? No, I know. Okay, okay. as soon as I said that, like the lights go on. Like, okay, you know how you're doing the little angry bird deal? What affects the trajectory? Well, obviously, you're going to know this, that it's going to be the direction and the angle. Now, just so I don't get any emails, there's lots of other factors in terms of initial velocity, temperature, air pressure. I know these things, but I want you to be thinking about the direction and the angle, because that has a lot to do with where that bullet or that missile or that rocket is going. There's some parallels with our own lives. There's a lot of factors that affect the direction, the trajectory, the course of where we're going. But there is one overarching predominant factor, and that is this. We could put it down in principle form. The trajectory of our lives is determined by our response to God's revealed truth. How we respond to God's revealed truth is really going to determine the trajectory or the course of our lives. And like we saw last week, there is tremendous triumph in trusting in God's truth. Remember in chapters 1, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we came to the great theme of the book of Romans, and that is the gospel of Christ. Look what he says. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I've got tremendous confidence in the gospel. What is the gospel, by the way? Well, the gospel is all that God has done, is doing, and will do through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you believe in the gospel, he says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For all of humanity, if you will believe in the truth about Christ, you're going to experience salvation from sin, salvation from a purposeless life. You actually have the power and the the relationship that comes from knowing Christ. And he says, all you must do is truly believe. Now, it doesn't say anything that you've got to join a church. It doesn't say that you've got to be baptized or go through some sort of confirmation. It says that you must believe, place your faith and trust In Christ. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is revolutionary. It changes lives. And he says, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God, as we talked about this last week, it is your right standing with God. When you believe in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And when we hear the gospel, we oftentimes hear that, that Jesus died and he paid the penalty for your sins, and your sins are forgiven. And we say that that's the gospel. And that is absolutely true, but that's really only half of the equation. Not only does God forgive your sins because Jesus has actually died in our place, but God actually gives us the righteousness of Christ, and he actually places that on our account. He imputes that on our account. So it's like this. It's like you and I are on death row, and we are miserable sinners, and we've done great crimes against God. And Jesus has actually paid the penalty for those sins. But it's not like God leaves us there and like, okay, I've cleaned you up, and now you're good to go. You need to actually perform and do things right from here on out. Actually, 
that's only half of it. God actually doesn't require for us to perform. He actually gives us his righteousness. The right, when Christ lived on life, he lived a perfect, absolutely sinless life. That actually gets transferred onto our account. And when you believe the gospel, there is a response where you want to obey because you're finding your joy, your delight in Christ. And he says, it is the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness that's from God, but it's also a righteousness that is done by God. We actually see God bringing about a restoration of all the chaos to his creation through the coming of Christ. It's like we see his saving activity taking a specific form where he's bringing people into right relationship with himself, and it's the righteousness of God. We see his righteousness, his rightness, being displayed, especially in the coming of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he says it's, for, it's revealed from faith to faith. Everyone who believes, and it is all of faith. You can never earn God's salvation And he says, just as it is written, and he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous man shall live by faith. And when Habakkuk was writing, he was writing to the people of Israel, specifically Judah, and he's saying the Babylonians are going to rise in power, and one day you are going to be handed over to them in judgment. And you're going to be brought to a place where only God could save you. And the the way he does is when you exercise true faith. And that's what he's saying. There's parallels in our own life. When you recognize just how degraded and, and deep sin is and the depravity that comes with sin, you're going to realize that only God can save you. That is why the righteous man, the one who's really right with God, he shall live by faith, and you can really live. It's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing belief in Christ, and this is what allows us to live. This is what makes the Christian life revolutionary. This is what the book of Romans is all about. The theme of this book actually tells us that God brings about transformation. And when you understand Romans 1, 16 and 17, and you take it to heart, it'll bring a revolution to your life. There's a guy by the name of Martin Luther, early in the 16th century as a young man. Uh, he, was, he was kind of a tortured soul. He was actually riding home one day in the middle of a major lightning storm. He was on his horse Lightning struck so close to his horse, he was literally thrown off. And in absolute fear, he's thinking that God was bringing about judgment to his life. He cries out to God and he says, save me and I'll become a monk. Okay? I don't know if you do things like that, but Martin Luther did. God does save him. He makes it through the storm. And Martin Luther follows through. His dad had been a coal miner. It was thought that, you know, he kind of established himself in business. Now, Martin Luther was smart. But he ends up following through. He becomes a monk. But he is completely tormented. He's in lots of despair. He puts himself through rigorous penance, self-sacrifice, self-flagellation. That's where they take whips and they beat themselves. The reason they did that is they thought they could bring about the mortification or the death of their flesh, okay? He's doing all these things, but it's not helping. In fact, he's getting worse and worse. In fact, he writes this. If you had asked me, did I love God, I would say, love God? Sometimes I hated him. I saw Christ as a terrifying judge who had the sword of judgment above my head, and I had no peace. Now, he was intelligent, and he continues to grow and study. In fact, they actually give him a a doctor of holy scriptures, and he actually gets a position at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. 
And it's there that he's studying the scriptures. He's preparing a series of lectures on the very book that we're studying, the book of Romans. And he's wrestling with this whole idea of God's righteousness, and he hates it. And and I'll tell you why he just despised it, and it made him feel so bad, because he believed that God was calling him to do something he couldn't do, and that is to live a perfect life and follow the law. And as, as an impeccable monk as he was, he couldn't do it. And the second thing that just tore, tore him apart is that he believed that God had set him up to fail. And so that's why he just despised this whole idea of the righteousness of God because he felt like a miserable failure. Well, if you want to find out what took place, let me give it to you in his own words. You find this in the commentary, his commentary on the epistles of the Romans. And listen to this, quote, I labor diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's word. The expression, the righteousness of God, blocked the way because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. And although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. But then listen to this change. But then... I grasped the righteousness of God that is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Luther went on, when I understood that and when the concept of justification by faith alone burst through into my mind, suddenly it was like the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. I literally, I broke through. And as I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting word. And it is this breakthrough of understanding that God's righteousness is received by faith in Christ. It led to the gospel being reintroduced to, reintroduced to Germany and to Europe, and it was really the fire seat of the, the Protestant Reformation, which we actually still are benefiting from today. And the book of Romans is all about this gospel. In fact, the theme of Romans is the transforming power of trusting in Christ and his gospel. And why do we need to do so? It's because we are absolutely lost in sin. Now, there is a great tragedy of rejecting God's truth. And beginning in verse 18, all the way through 320, he's going to spell that out. So remember, I put it out there, I'm challenging each of us to really get a good handle on the book of Romans. I've given you six key words. If you'll remember these, you can remember the entire outline for the book of Romans. It all begins with exaltation, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which talks about the celebrating Christ and his gospel. But then you get the real difficult bad news about condemnation, why we need the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 320, it establishes our need for Christ and his gospel. You could title that condemnation. Followed by that in 321 through the end of chapter 5, then you have justification, how God makes a sinner right with him. And it's a great explanation of that. Once you become right with God, you start growing in his grace. That's sanctification, chapter 6, 7, and 8. Then you're asking, well, what about, though, the Jews? I mean, aren't these God's promised people? Is he given up on them? Well, you find out in chapters 9, 10, 11 that God is going to bring about a restoration that one day they're going to be saved and they will believe that Jesus is their Messiah. And that takes us to 12 through 16, which talks about transformation. The transformation that God brings about in his people. He changes everything about us. 
And that's what Romans talks about. So when we come to chapter 1, verse 18, though, it's the section that begins condemnation. In fact, look what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is God's personal anger and aversion toward sin, okay? It's God's response to evil. Now, don't get the idea that, like, God is um, kind of being depicted here as having a temper, and so now he's really upset about these things, and so in his temper, he has this rage. Actually, that's, that's not it at all. If you really understand God's just wrath, you actually have to even understand that it actually flows out of the fact that he is a God of love. And he loves his people and his creation so much that anything that would deter either people worshiping him and truly knowing him or creating chaos, he has a holy aversion to. You actually see this even at a human level, okay? If you're a father and you've got a kid and someone is abusing that kid of yours, you got a real aversion to that, right? You're going to be upset and angry and you're going to deal with it. Well, that's what God does. Sin is causing a breakdown of the way things should be. It's created all sorts of havoc. God has a wrath against it. He is going to bring judgment, and he will punish all wickedness. One day, he'll remove it. But you want to see God's wrath is revealed. God's wrath is revealed in two ways. It's revealed indirectly, and that he allows for the natural outworking of sin and all that comes with it, okay? But the second way is sometimes God deals in his wrath directly. You found this with like Adam and Eve. When they sinned, God directly made a statement telling them the penalties and what's going to happen, the judgment that he's going to bring. But you see that with the flood. You see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. You see it in Babylon. Uh, You will see it in the, uh, the end times where God is going to bring a cataclysmic judgment And if you really want to understand God's wrath and how it is actually sourced in his love, I want you to think deeply about Jesus. Because God actually sends his son into the world. And because of his great love for humanity, the people that he's made, he actually sends his son into the world. He lives a perfect life. It is the incarnation where God the son, the eternal son, enters into humanity and he lives a perfect life and he goes to the cross to take on God's wrath as God brings judgment upon sin and he does throw through his son and it is actually sourced in his love. And I'll tell you, once you think deeply about Jesus, it just overwhelms you with a sense of awe and worship. But as the text says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That has this idea of a lack of devotion, that you really don't worship the one true God. And unrighteousness, which speaks more of behavior, it's ungodly actions. You do not conform your life to his word. You don't respond correctly to his revelation, and hence you act wrongly. It's unrighteousness. God says he is going to bring about a judgment to that. Now, just as God is a God of love, mercy, and grace— We all love to extol those characters of God. You need to know something else about God. This may be the God you never knew. He is also a God of justice, wrath, and judgment. And he takes his people and he takes sin seriously. And that is why he has a holy aversion to it. 
Now, there is something that you must understand. What is causing this? Why is this coming about? Well, you might have missed it, but look at the end of verse 18. It's being revealed against, to men, you see that at verse 18, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They literally are trying to push down this knowledge of God. They are suppressing it. They are pressing down a force, and there's a counterforce that is being acted. So like, you're like, help me understand this. So you know how like you're at the hotel and you're trying to impress your kids about how cool you are and all, you get the beach ball and you're in the pool and you take that ball and you force it underneath the water, right? And, and then all the people in the hotel are watching you and you're showing off how cool you are and then you let that ball go and it goes shooting up, right? And the kids are like, oh, that's great. You're trying to suppress that ball and you push it down, but it, gets, it shoots back up as soon as you let go. Same with a spring. You push down on that spring that's all great. You're exerting pressure, man. Your muscles are flexed, but you let go. That spring just goes back right back up, right? That's what the text is saying. The text is saying that God's wrath is revealed against all who are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. If, and notice what he says, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God has made it evident. He has done so through what he has created. When you look at the universe, its complexity, its beauty, its design, its function, all of this speaks of the wonder of God. And God has made it known to humanity, his existence, and what man has done is is suppressed it, okay? Man didn't begin in absolute ignorance and kind of work himself up to a better understanding of who God may be. Actually, he has known from the very beginning who God really is. And there has been a suppression. It's a resistance to it. You could kind of think of it this way. Creation is God's radio station. And God is broadcasting everywhere of his existence, of his character, of his eternality, even of his grace. And man, us, we actually have like an internal radio receiver, and we can actually receive information like that. But the problem is, we absolutely reject it. In fact, he says in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. His power, his deity, his divine nature, the fact that he's faithful, that he's kind, that he's gracious even, you can actually perceive from creation. I mean, think about it. You're going like, how do you know that God's gracious from creation? Let's go with food, for instance. God supplies food for the entire planet. Did you know that there's enough food for everybody so that no one has to go hungry? It's not a production issue. It's a distribution issue. That's the only reason why everybody gets food. God supplies that. He actually supplies the air that you breathe. Did you know that? He does that. There's, that tells us something about God. He supplies food, air. He supplies rain, sunlight. There is growth. All of this is meant to show us that there is a God who is absolutely powerful. He's eternal, and he's even gracious. In fact, you see what he says there in verse 20? What has been made? All those words, what has been made, translates one Greek word. It's the Greek word poema. That's where we get our word poem for. Now, you know what a poem is. It's a form of literary art. It follows a certain qualities that are observable, and it, cre- it actually evokes meaning. It helps us understand something. 
you need to understand that God's creation is like his masterpiece. Just like a poet can create a masterful poem, just like a painter can have a masterpiece, God's creation, both at a macro level and at even a micro level, speaks of who he is. It's like his masterpiece. It's interesting, like Psalm 19, the first half of it says that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Not in a verbal speech, but one that is observable. If you are willing to look, you can't help but to see order, design, functionality, beauty, awesomeness. The last half of Psalm 19 extols God's written revelation and the beauty and the perfection of his word. But creation demands a creator. Design demands and speaks of a designer. I mean, we know that. Like, for instance, like this. My, if you saw this, you guys know, probably know what this is, right? Let's say we're at Cameron Park, and we're hiking around, and you find this, and you see it. How many of you would say, wow, look at that. All that wind, that lightning storm that we had on Friday, some Baylor student kind of kicked some dirt around, the wind really blew, the water ran, and this is what was made. How many of you would actually go, that makes sense to me? Anybody? Come on. I would hope you would be honest. Because, actually, you would say, no, nah, Grant, that's a watch, man. And there's a lot of order and design on that. You probably got that from somewhere. I did. I got it from my wife for a birthday present many years ago. And it came from a store. And there was a watchmaker somewhere that, made, somewhere that made this watch. And everybody that's even halfway rational will draw that conclusion. How is it, though, when we come to creation itself which is far more complex than my little watch, massive in account. And we're like, no, 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 (laughs) no designer. No, no, that couldn't have been created. We're going to have to have some other explanation. There's a lot of folks that you've probably heard about this intelligent design movement. A lot of folks in there are not necessarily Christians. They're just looking at the facts and saying, the more we drill down, the deeper we go, the more we see the obvious. There is amazing design to what we're seeing. There has to be a designer. And so if you look, whether you're looking at the sun, the moon, the stars, if you look at the individual cell in a human body, I mean, it is fascinating, like this bacterial flagellum and all these highly intricate parts. That is, there's no way that that just happens or evolves. They have a process and a design that is absolutely observable. It all speaks of a creator, a designer. If you're looking at the human body or the atmosphere or the mountain range or a universe, all of this speaks of the wonder and the glory of God. And you know, when it comes to the human body, we know quite a bit about how a human body works. We could have doctors up here in our church, and they could probably give us lectures for weeks about how the human body works. But if you want to understand the why of a human body, if you want to understand why we're designed the way we are, like why we have eyebrows where the hair actually grows up so sweat doesn't come into our eyes. If you want to understand the why, you got to look to the creator. You have to look to God himself. It's kind of like this. It's like a a father who tells his son, do your homework. And he makes it crystal clear you're supposed to do your homework. And that kid, you know, he gets on the bus, and everywhere he sees, on the bus there's a sign, there's little bumper stickers, there's a little airplane with this little thing, do your homework, Joe, do your homework. He gets home, he turns on the TV, there's an ad that says, Joe, do your homework. He looks at his phone, it's blowing up because he's got all these messages and emails and texts that tell him to do his homework, and he's getting the message that he's supposed to do his homework. 
But not only that, but there is an internal response where, you know, his parents have been working real hard with Joe for him to understand the importance of being responsible and doing your homework. Well, that's kind of how it is with God. He has declared it everywhere in his creation of his existence and something about his character. Not enough to bring about salvation in Christ, but enough to declare his existence and who he is. And furthermore, there's an internal responder in us that we can actually see God is communicating to us something about who he is. And so you might be asking like, okay, and like one of the most famous questions, one of the most popular questions people ask are like, what about the heathen in Africa? I mean, they're innocent and they never heard the gospel. Are they, God's not going to judge them. Well, why don't we take it a little closer to home? What about the heathen in Waco? Okay, I've lived here long enough to discover that there are heathen right here. And frankly, they're far worse off perhaps than the folks in Africa. First of all, you're not innocent. There's no one innocent. But second, what has God said? If you want real answers, why don't you go to the guy who, God, who actually set this all up? And what does he say in verse 20? They are without excuse. They have pressed down. They are suppressing even that which they have. They're not going to be judged because of the rejection of a gospel and of Jesus whom they've not heard. That's not why they're going to be judged. They're going to be actually judged because they've actually suppressed what God has revealed about himself even in the creation. And I want to tell you that I feel like I'm on pretty good grounds here to say that if they are responding correctly to the revelation that God is providing them, that God will see to it that they get the gospel and they will hear about Jesus. And if you want to, like, where in the world are you getting that? All you have to do is go to the book of Acts. And it is kind of just one incident after another where people who are responding rightly to the revelation that they do have, God sees to it that they get the gospel. So you remember a guy by the name, well, I don't, we don't know his name, but he was called the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm sure he had a miserable life, but he's in Jerusalem and he's making his way back. He's reading Isaiah 53 and he doesn't understand. And God brings this guy, Philip, out of nowhere. And he brings him a long ways away to the middle of nowhere to actually tell this guy, this Ethiopian, what he's reading and explains this points to Jesus. That's found in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10. You got a guy by the name of Cornelius. He is a Roman centurion. He actually believes in the God of Israel. He's devout. He pays alms. He tries to help the Jewish people. And God sees fit to take a guy by the name of Peter, an apostle, who's a long ways away and through a series of events bring this guy to his house where he actually shares the gospel to not only Cornelius, but his family and friends, and they all believe. Or if you want another example, there's a woman by the name of Lydia. She was obviously very smart and a very successful businesswoman. She's from Thyatira. She's doing business in Philippi. She's by a river. And Paul, who's just made his way into Europe, encounters this woman, shares the gospel of Jesus to her, and she believes, and she becomes the very first believer in Christ in Europe. She was responding correctly to the revelation that she did have. God brings the gospel, and it is happening today. It's actually happening in wide and a widespread scale. If you look at TV, radio, these little proclaimer boxes where the, just the scriptures are being read. We're talking in very remote areas like in Mexico and all over the world. People are gathering and walk miles and miles just to hear the scripture. God's gospel is going forth. We got missionaries. And did you know what? He's bringing the gospel through you. Don't, don't just sit there and go, man, I'm so glad we got TV, radio, and some missionaries. We'll throw some money at them. They better do a good job. Uh-uh. You're either a mission field or you're a missionary. God has actually sent you to our community so that they might know the goodness of Jesus. But you know what? 
you don't respond to what you have, do have, you are without excuse. And look what he says in verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. If you don't want to see, you're going to lose your capacity to see, and their heart was darkened because they rejected the truth. You remember a, a woman by the name of Helen Keller? Uh, that, there was a lady by the name of Ann Sullivan that devoted herself to help this very intelligent little girl who had, was, had a situation where she couldn't see, she couldn't hear, and she couldn't speak. And Ann Sullivan helped her break through. And when Ann Sullivan got to the place where she could actually, for the very first time, tell Helen Keller about God, do you know how Helen Keller responded? She said that she actually already knew him. She just didn't know his name. She was already responding with even the senses that she did have. She just didn't know his name. Everybody is going to worship someone or something. Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, this doesn't say that if you're not worshiping God that you're an idiot. Actually, my experience is there's a lot of highly intelligent, rational people got great insight into a lot of different things, but they refuse and choose not to believe. And when you look at what God has revealed in creation, you look at what God has revealed in his written revelation and in the person and work of Christ, and you go, uh-uh, I'm going to do it my own way. That is the epitome of foolishness. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. It's absolutely foolishness. And look what they did. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God because if you don't have God on his terms, you're going to have God on your terms, right? In the image of form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They're like, you know, God, eh, I, don't, I see it in creation. There is something inside of me that says, you're absolutely there, but I don't want it. I don't like it, and it's not popular in my culture. I'm turning away from you. It goes all the way back to what the serpent told Eve in the garden. Remember that? The serpent said, Satan said, don't, you could be like God if you just would do this. And that sounded really good to Eve. Whoa! Oh, yeah. I'm going to be like, God, I like that. I could be my own woman. I could be my own God. I like that a lot. And man has been bought buying into that lie ever since. It was Voltaire, the French, French philosopher in the 18th century, by no means a believer. And I'm sure he said this with a great degree of sarcasm. But he said this, God created man in his image, and man returned the favor. And that's what's happened. We have decided that we will create God in our image. And it starts off, notice what he said, exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. We're gonna, we are worshipers at heart, so if you won't worship the one true God, then you'll start worshiping someone else. And how often do you find some figure and they get all sorts of adulation? I mean, don't think of it just as religious. I mean, there's people that are worshiped practically because they're rock stars and they can sing or they've got some athletic talent or they've got made a lot of money. Our heart is like an idol factory. We're going to turn an idol out of anybody or anything because if you won't have God, you are going to worship something or someone, and that's exactly what happens. And when he talks about they exchanged it for a corruptible man and birds, well, that's exactly what we find. We find, like, in Egypt, they, they actually worshipped a stork and a hawk. In Rome, they had an eagle. That's why the Jews had such an aversion for them to want the Romans to put these eagles up, especially in Jerusalem. It was absolute idolatry. 
Well, the Romans would worship them. Even in American Indians, if you look at even the totem poles and those birds, they're still practiced today where they are actually worshiping birds. Okay? If you, and then notice that he said four-footed animals. If you look at religious history or archaeological digs, it is too numerous to tell you how many idols were four-footed creatures. Okay? I mean, anything from mice to rats to elephants to crocodiles to monkeys just created these images, and they worshiped them. Or... Uh, notice what else he said? And crawling creatures. Even today, if you go to Egypt, they actually sell these as little, like, little souvenirs. These are they're these little scarab beetles because they were worshipped in Egypt. Um, another word for a scarab beetle is called a dung beetle. Okay? You know where these little beetles live, don't you? You're smart. They live in the manure pile. And to show you what it looks like to exchange the truth of God for a lie, we will worship this. And so they do. And so they did. In fact, it's really interesting. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, and he's saying, you shall have no image of me. You shall worship me. Do you know what the children of Israel were doing while God was actually giving them that direction? Well, they were down there having a party, and they created a golden, what? Calf. Just like the text would say. You're without excuse. You exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals, and of crawling creatures. You know, many humanistic sociologists, philosophers, and liberal theologians say that, well, actually, religion is just kind of the mark of an upward climb from primitive chaos. And so what you've got is you went from animism to polydemonism to polytheism to finally monotheism. But in actuality, religion actually shows the lowest depravity of man. It is actually de-evolution. It all got started when God declared who he is, and they saw him, the triune God, and it was clearly declared in his creation. Man would have nothing of it. And if you think like, well, we've kind of moved past that, uh uh-uh. Look at the surge of things like astrology. People actually looking for their horoscope to be able to make business decisions. Even world leaders so interested in the occult. Why? Because they will not have God. And the object of our devotion determines the outcomes of our lives. And so what happened? Well, look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over. He gives them over. In fact, you're going to find this term happen three different times as we move through chapter 1. It's like, it's the term used for handing over a prisoner to his sentence. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That word impurity speaks of decaying matter, like the contents of a grave, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. God says, you will not have me, then I will allow you to experience the effects of your choice of sin. And he literally gives them over. It's like the consequence of sin is sin. And come back next week, because it's going to get real heavy hitting, and it's going to get real quiet, because God, it's like he's addressing our culture today. And he's going to show you just how deep depravity goes. And he gives them over, and that their bodies would be dishonored among them. This idea of impurity, I mean, anything from adultery to fornication to the whole hookup culture that we're living in today, God gives them over, and they actually experience the depth of depravity and the consequences that come with sin. And really, you find that the character of worshipers, no matter what culture, is really a good indicator of who or what they are worshiping. And notice what he says in verse 25. 
For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. A people who refuses to honor God begins to dishonor themselves. And so God allows judgment to go forth. Now, is there any hope? I mean, this is pretty sobering, difficult news. I'll tell you what, there is. It goes back to the gospel, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. You want, you want freedom? You want release? It is the gospel. And if you want to see what does it look like when you've come to a place where you're truly trusting in Christ and you believe the gospel, look at verse 25. It gives you some clues. You worship and serve, not the creature, but the creator. When, when you begin to worship God and it becomes a priority, Sunday morning isn't an option like, do I stay in bed or do I show up at church? No, I want to be here to worship God. That there is a, a complete reorientation in your life. It's not about you. It's about the serving the king of kings and worshiping him. The whole idea of going to heaven is the idea that I get to worship unhindered. That is when the gospel has taken root, and that's where you're going to find hope for your heart. So the trajectory of our lives, you know what it's determined by? It's determined by our response to God and his revealed truth. How are you responding today? Let's pray. Lord, that's an amazing passage of scripture. You actually lay it out in clarity just how deep depravity goes. And Father, if there is someone who has come here today who has never trusted in your son, and you have used your word once more time to awaken them, of not only how bad and the consequences of sin, but the wonders and the goodness of Jesus. May this be their breakthrough right now. Where they just trust Jesus, the payment for their sins, and the one who can truly give them life. And for all of us who do know you, God, fill us with awe and wonder. Give us a compassion on those who are lost in their sin. Lord, make us emissaries of your gospel, that people would know the goodness of knowing Christ. We ask this as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.